Hi, I'm Beth, and I'll be reading you today's e-edition of the Cape Cod Times, dated Monday, December 4th. We start with the weather and the lottery. Today's looking pretty nice with a high of 52 and mostly sunny. Tomorrow, though, the temp seems to drop about 10 degrees, a high of only 41, rather cloudy and obviously cooler. Wednesday's looking even worse than Tuesday, with a high of only 38 and a couple of rain or possibly snow showers. And Thursday, even cooler, a high of 36, mostly cloudy. So today looks like the pick of the week. Taking a look at some lottery numbers from the weekend. For Sunday, December 3rd, the numbers game, the midday drawing was 7863. And last night's drawing was 2685. Mass cash for Sunday, December 3rd, 1, 3, 8, 20, and 29. And the Powerball for Saturday night, 28, 35, 41, 47, 60, Powerball 3. First front page headline, Keeping Working Waterfronts Working. A bipartisan, bicoastal bill introduced in mid-November by Senator Susan Collins from Maine and Jack Reed from Rhode Island could spell help for commercial, commercial fishermen on Cape Cod. The Working Waterfront Protection Act, S3180, would establish a grant program that would support working waterfronts in coastal states, including the Great Lakes. The act would provide $20 million annually through fiscal 2028. Commercial fishing cooperatives, working waterfront owners and operators, nonprofit organizations, and muni municipal and state governments would be eligible to apply. Fishing Communities Coalition Coordinator Noah Oppenheim said support is crucial because of pressures facing working waterfront owners and fishing communities nationwide. The coalition represents more than 1,000 independent small boat fishermen and business owners from Maine to Alaska. It's catalytic, Oppenheim said in an interview on Monday, in addition to providing support for desperately needed upgrades in the face of climate change and gentrification, it also provides support to make working waterfront areas permanently so. Should Congress pass it, Oppenheim said it would be a great way to preserve what little working waterfront there is left. Massachusetts consistently ranks as the first or second state in the nation in fisheries landings, competing only with Alaska. That's according to Aubrey Church, who's policy director of the Cape Cod Commercial Fishermen's Alliance. Massachusetts fisheries provide $839 million in ex-vessel value to fishing vessels, Church wrote in an email. Ex-vessel ex value is the price received by fishers for fish at the first point of landing. Barnstable County represents the second largest of the state's fishing landings by ex-vessel value at $74.5 million, second only to New Bedford, and represents the most diversity in catch, gear types, and vessel sizes with 1,170 permitted fishing businesses. Each of Barnstable County's 15 towns has at least one working waterfront. In 2021, the Chatham-based Alliance, the State Division of Marine Fisheries, and Urban Harbors Institute conducted a survey of fishermen, harbor masters, and working waterfront industry participants and found that they all shared some of the same concerns. The need for dredging, 
lack of space to load and unload gear and catch, lack of parking space, too few affordable buoys for fishermen to tie up, ice machines, ramps, moorings, and cranes were at the top of the list. Cape Fisherman Andrew Spalt thinks support for working waterfronts and the commercial fishermen who use them is long overdue. Infrastructure upgrades and improve access to the waterfront are important, the 34-year-old said. But there's a need for a big-picture view of the industry, he said, because of the loss of working waterfront property, a decline in the nation's maritime heritage, and a weakening of an important domestic fishing industry. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, commercial and recreational fisheries are responsible for more than 1.7 million jobs in the U.S. and $253 billion in sales. It's a deeper question than if there are enough docks, he said. The gentrification of Cape ports, the constant need to dredge so fishermen have access to harbors, the capital it takes to buy boats and equipment, regulatory hurdles and other barriers make it a difficult profession, he said. With so much imported seafood, people don't have to think about the local fisheries, he said. If more people think about it, we can all start heading in the right direction. One day last summer, Spalt came into Hyannis Harbor to unload. A storm was coming, and he was told there was no slip available, he couldn't unload, and that he'd have to go to New Bedford. Spalt docked near Baxter's Wharf to wait out the storm and took his load to New Bedford the next day to unload. Dealing with things like that takes a toll, Spalt said. Bill proponents are concerned that without funds to help, the commercial fishing industry could be pushed out of ports, by gentrification or other users. Sea level rise, climate change, outdated infrastructure, and inadequate facilities all impact the successful continuity of commercial fishing on the Cape. Church wants to see commercial fishing continue to play a vital role in the blue economy on the Cape. She wants young people to be able to get into the field and make a living wage so they can afford to live on the Cape. This bill would help commercial fishermen combat some of these pressures, she said. In other news, this headline, Take a Step Back, and this is from Bourne. The four-decade trek to select a suitable location for a fire station south of the canal, as of late November, was thought to have rounded the final bend. But not yet. The road, if anything, got longer. Wayne Sampson, chair of the Southside Fire Station Building Committee, on November 21st told the select board the recommended new station site at the old enclosed firehouse along Barlow's Landing Road in Pocasset proved unsuitable. Sampson said it was professionally determined the flood zone goes right through the middle of where the new station was going to be. He said his search committee, however, was not starting all over as much as reanalyzing locations previously reviewed and deemed unsuitable. Some sites are still available, he said, two are not. It's time for us to take a step back and look at other properties on our list and consider other recommendations in the best interests of the town. Perhaps look at current town properties, Samson said. The site search panel, eyeing progress at long last, had hoped pending project design would lead to a construction price tag in January and a May debt exclusion request for 20-year financing. Now that critical planning will be put off until the new year. Price tags for a four-bay station have been discussed by various site search committees at $11 to $17 million. 
If the next station project includes a land purchase, the overall total could be eye-watering, but search members have carefully avoided such discussions. There is collective search panel understanding that the principal obstacle in site searches involves the long stretch of geography between the canal and the Magansett line, notably as that affects the need for rapid response by the fire department. In addition, a large swath of Pocasset and Monument Beach are part of a municipal watershed protection district. Yet there is one hard truth that emerged over four decades of site searching. There is no perfect born firehouse location south of the canal, but there have always been new ideas. One panel considered a firehouse built inside the Otis Rotary along Route 28. Another thought a station on the easterly edge of the Bourne South traffic circle would be appropriate, and yet another eyed school department playing fields behind the town library off Sandwich Road. Select Board Chair Mary Jane Mastrangelo on November 21st wondered if two properties on the search list that had environmental problems involving pollutants should be reconsidered in terms of the town mitigating the issues. A debt exclusion request remains an obvious financing option with a customary two decades of payment. There are others. Funds might be tapped from the town's capital construction stabilization account. Select Board Member Peter Meyer, also a Station Search Committee member, said the quest now is get the information we need and see what works for the townspeople, notably a suitable practical fire station that serves the area's needs. We have to keep digging our heels in, get the best information for the townspeople. This station is long overdue. Taxpayers should have suitable location. They've been waiting 30, 40, and 50 years for this, so what's another six months or so? In this headline, Chatham officials focus on decades-old floodgate. An approximately 60-year-old floodgate on Morris Island Road needs to be replaced, according to town officials. That problem will be the main topic at a public info session at 10 a.m. on Wednesday at the Community Center at 702 Main Street. Maura Boswell of Geosyntec Consultants will lead the discussion. The company was hired by the town to evaluate the existing structure and surrounding areas to determine the type of replacement gate that is needed. Boswell will discuss floodgate data, wind, weather, and water level information relevant to replacing the floodgate. She also will discuss further data analysis needed and information regarding the times and conditions for deploying the floodgate. The gate, which is located at the bend on Morris Island Road, was installed around 1960 when the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers dredged Stage Harbor, said Harbor Master Stuart Smith. The gate is deployed when storm force winds out of the west or southwest are expected, he said. It is in need of replacement due to its age and cumbersome operations, Smith said. Any questions should be directed to Smith at sssmith at chatham-mass.gov. And this front page headline, U.S. ship attacked as war in Gaza escalates. An American warship and multiple commercial ships came under attack Sunday in the Red Sea, and Israel's bombardment of the Gaza Strip intensified as the war escalated following a week-long truce. We're aware of reports regarding attacks on the USS Kearney and commercial vessels in the Red Sea, and will provide information as it becomes available, the Pentagon said Sunday in an email to USA Today. 
The Carney and Arleigh Burke class destroyer is described on its website as 505 feet of American fighting steel. It was not damaged and no serious injuries were reported. Yemen's Iran-backed Houthi rebels, who have ambushed multiple ships in the Red Sea in recent days, claimed responsibility for attacking two commercial ships but made no mention of the Kearney. The attacks, combined with an increase in clashes between Israeli forces and Hezbollah near the Lebanon border, could represent steps towards an expansion of the war in the region, something the Biden administration has labored to prevent. A U.S. official speaking on conditions of anonymity to discuss intelligent matters told AP the attack began about 10 a.m. in Yemen and lasted up to five hours. Another U.S. official who spoke on condition of anonymity said the Kearney had intercepted at least one drone during the attack. The Houthis issued a statement saying they carried out an operation against two Israeli ships in the Bab al-Madab Strait, which connects the Red Sea to the Gulf of Aden. The ships were not Israeli-owned, but did appear to have links to Israel. Houthi military spokesman Brigadier General Yaha Sari said the ships ignored warnings before the attacks. The Israeli military said Sunday it had located over 800 shafts of Hamas underground tunnels and many miles of tunnel routes in the Gaza Strip since the war began almost two months ago. Some of the shafts connected strategic underground Hamas assets, and weapons were found in many of them, Israel said. About 500 of the tunnels and miles of tunnel routes were destroyed with explosives or blockades. These shafts were located in civilian spaces, and many of them were located near or inside buildings such as educational institutions, kindergartens, mosques, and playgrounds, the Israeli military said. Israel has stepped up its military offensive across Gaza since a truce that allowed for the exchange of hostages and prisoners ended over the weekend. U.S. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said the administration is working hour by hour to get Israel and Hamas back to the negotiating table, but said, I just don't know when it might happen. The Israeli Prime Minister's office announced Saturday that Israel has recalled its negotiators from Qatar, saying they had reached a dead end in talks. In other news, veterinary experts are puzzled about the pathogen that has caused respiratory illness in hundreds of dogs across the U.S., but there's one matter they tend to agree on. They believe the disease is not likely a risk to human health. In the meantime, experts said it's wise to wash your hands after you've spent time with dogs. More than a dozen states stretching from Oregon to Florida have reported cases of dogs sick with prolonged pneumonia and inflamed trachea who aren't responding to medicine. It's unclear what's triggering the strange illness, which has resulted in serious illness and, in rare cases, death. We really need to be able to separate the wheat from the chaff, said Dr. Kurt Williams, director of the Oregon Veterinary Diagnostic Lab at Oregon State University, which is working with the State Department of Agriculture to help study more than 200 cases of the new illness in September. Williams told USA Today there is no evidence humans are contracting the illness, nor there is, is there evidence that other pets are. Dr. David Needle, a senior vet pathologist at the University of New Hampshire's Veterinary Diagnostic Lab, said the pathogen is host-adapted, meaning it's more likely to stick with the organism it has already infected, 
rather than jump to another species. Dr. Colin Bassler, Deputy Director of the CDC, which is tasked with preventing the spread of disease from animals to humans, said there is no evidence that the dog illness can infect people. There is no known risk to human health linked to the respiratory illness in dogs, he said. The cause of illness is still being investigated by the veterinary medical and animal health partners. The American Veterinary Medical Association has made similar findings, but Dr. Rena Carlson, president of the association, stopped short of calling it impossible that people could catch the disease. In general, the risk of people getting sick from dogs with canine infectious respiratory disease is extremely low, she said in a statement on Wednesday. However, because we don't know yet exactly what agent or agents are causing the current outbreak, it's a good idea to thoroughly wash your hands after handling yours or other dogs. This early in the outbreak, far more is unknown than known. Scientists disagree about what kind of pathogen is causing the disease among dogs. The disease might be new or it might have been around for years. Researchers at Colorado State University said clinical findings indicate the disease could be caused by a virus. Needle of the University of New Hampshire said it's a bacterium. Even if vets identify bacteria or a virus in a sick dog, it doesn't mean the pathogen they found is what's causing the disease. In Oregon, Williams said he's being cautious about pinpointing a cause while he continues to rule out pathogens. Studies from biopsies of dogs' lung tissue can provide a better understanding of possible causes of the disease, he said. While so many questions remain unanswered, he urged pet owners to remain patient and consult their vets if they have concerns. These pathogens are wily little beasts, he said, and they're trying to survive like the rest of us. If your pet is sick, you should watch for signs of worsening coughing accompanied by eye or nasal discharge and sneezing especially if your dog stops eating, has trouble breathing, is coughing continually, or is very lethargic. Owners should also make sure dogs stay updated on their vaccines. In this headline, Christie says Trump is poison for the GOP. With about six weeks to go until the Republican primary season kicks off, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is warning of a GOP death sentence if former President Donald Trump becomes the party's nominee in 2024. Christie has built a campaign on attacking Trump and calling on fellow GOP candidates to do the same. During an interview Thursday night, News Nation host Chris Cuomo asked Christie whether it would be a death sentence in the primary to criticize Trump, who has strong support from the Republican base. No, the death sentence is to let Trump be our nominee, Christie said. If Trump is our nominee, we will not only lose the presidency again, but we will lose both houses of Congress, and we will lose races up and down the ticket, Christie added, and this isn't speculation. Christie called Trump political poison up and down the ballot and questioned how other candidates, like former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, can take on the indicted ex-president later if they aren't doing it now. If you are unwilling to take him on now, if you eventually get on the stage with him, how are you willing to take him on or able to take him on with any credibility? When asked whether Haley was a legitimate prospect for president, Christie said she was, but that she was vying for second place. When you're unwilling to stand up and talk about the guy who was the front runner in the race by 20 to 30 points, depending on what poll you look at, Chris, you're not trying to win, Christie said. You're trying to come in second. 
Here's something a little different and interesting story. It's a challenge for all new parents, getting enough sleep while keeping a close eye on their newborns. For some penguins, it means thousands of mini catnaps a day, researchers discovered. Chin-strap penguins in Antarctica need to guard their eggs and chicks around the clock in crowded, noisy colonies. So they nod off thousands of times each day, but only for about four seconds at a time, to stay vigilant, the researchers reported Thursday in the journal Science. These short micro-sleeps, totaling around 11 hours per day, appear to be enough to keep the parents going for weeks. These penguins look like drowsy drivers, blinking their eyes open and shut, and they do it 24-7 for several weeks at a time, said Niels Rotborg, a sleep researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Biological Intelligence in Germany and co-author of the new study. What's surprising is that they're able to function okay and successfully raise their young, he said. Chinstrap penguins, named for the thin line of black facial feathers resembling a chinstrap, usually lay their eggs in pebble nests in November. As with many other kinds of penguins, mated pairs share parenting duties. One parent tends to the eggs and chicks alone, while the other goes off fishing for family meals. While the adults don't face many natural predators in the breeding season, large birds called brown squaws prey on eggs and small fuzzy gray chicks. Other adults may also try to steal pebbles from nests, so the devoted parents must always be on guard. For the first time, the scientists tracked the sleeping behavior of chin-strap penguins in an Antarctic breeding colony by attaching sensors that measure brain waves. They collected data on 14 adults over 11 days on King George Island off the coast of Antarctica. The idea for this study was hatched when Wan Young Lee, a biologist at the Korean Polar Research Institute, noticed breeding penguins frequently blinking their eyes and apparently nodding off during his long days of field observations. But the team needed to record brain waves to confirm they were sleeping. For these penguins, micro-sleeps have some restorative functions. If not, they could not endure, he said. The researchers didn't collect sleep data outside the breeding season, but they hypothesized that the penguins may sleep in longer intervals at other times of the year. Here is Today in History. Today is Monday, December 4th, the 338th day of 2023. There are 27 days left in the year. On this date in 1783, General George Washington bade farewell to his Continental Army officers at Francis Tavern in New York. In 1918, President Woodrow Wilson left Washington on a trip to France to attend the Versailles Peace Conference. In 1942, during World War II, U.S. bombers struck the Italian mainland for the first time in a raid on Naples. In 1956, Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Carl Perkins gathered for the first and only time for a jam session at Sun Records in Memphis. In 1965, the United States launched Gemini 7 with Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Frank Borman and Navy Commander James Lovell aboard on a two-week mission. While Gemini 7 was in orbit, its sister ship, Gemini 6A, was launched on December 15th on a one-day mission. The two spacecraft were able to rendezvous within a foot of each other. 
1978, San Francisco got its first female mayor as city supervisor Diane Feinstein was named to replace the assassinated George Moscone. In 1980, the bodies of four American churchwomen slain in El Salvador two days earlier were unearthed. Five Salvadoran National Guardsmen were later convicted of murdering nuns Eda Ford, Maura Clark, and Dorothy Castle, and lay worker Jean Donovan. In 1986, both houses of Congress moved to establish special committees to conduct investigations of the Iran-Contra affair. In 1992, President George H.W. Bush ordered American troops to lead a mercy mission to Somalia, threatening military action against warlords and gangs who were blocking food for starving millions. And in 1995, the first NATO troops landed in the Balkans to begin setting up a peace mission that brought American soldiers into the middle of the Bosnian conflict. And some people in the news, an appeals court upheld the disorderly conduct convictions Friday of actor Jussie Smollett, who was accused of staging a racist, homophobic attack against himself in 2019 and then lying about it to Chicago police. Smollett, who appeared in the TV show Empire, challenged the role of a special prosecutor, jury selection, evidence, and many other aspects of the case, but all were turned aside in a two-to-one opinion from the Illinois Appellate Court. Smollett had reported to police that he was the victim of a racist and homophobic attack by two men wearing ski masks. The manhunt for the attackers soon turned into an investigation of Smollett himself, leading to his arrest on charges he had orchestrated the attack. Authorities said he paid two men whom he knew from work on Empire. A jury convicted Smollett in 2021 on five felony counts of disorderly conduct, a charge that can be filed in Illinois when a person lies to police. He will now have to finish a 150-day stint in jail that was part of his sentence. He spent just six days in jail while his appeal was pending. In other news, MSNBC will shuffle its weekend schedule early next year to try to juice ratings, starting a new morning ensemble program and ending regular shows hosted by Mehdi Hassan and Yasmin Vosogian. In a memo to her staff Thursday, MSNBC President Rashida Jones said the changes will help the network better position ourselves as we head into the presidential election. The new show, The Weekend, will air for two hours starting at 8 a.m. Eastern on Saturday and Sundays. Its hosts will be Alicia Menendez, Simone Sanders Townsend, and Michael Steele. Ayman Molyeldin and Alex Witt will both get more airtime as hosts on both weekend days under the new plans. Jonathan Capehart and Katie Fang will see time changes. A country music star will perform at Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear's second inauguration, while healthcare workers and public school educators will serve as grand marshals of the parade as details of the day-long ceremonies on December 12th came into focus on Thursday. The Democratic governor defeated Republican Attorney General Daniel Cameron in the November 7th election to settle one of the nation's most closely watched campaigns of 2023. Kentucky natives turned stars like Childers and rapper Jack Harlow serve as ambassadors for the bluegrass state. Bashir has formed a friendship with Harlow. And King Charles III caused some raised eyebrows Friday when he wore a tie adorned with a pattern of Greek flags to the COP28 climate summit 
days after a diplomatic spat between the UK government and Greece over the Parthenon marbles. The British monarch is meant to be above politics, but many in Greece interpreted interpreted the tie as a gesture of solidarity with their cause. Charles Ward, as he met British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and made a speech at the UN summit in Dubai. The king's late father, Prince Philip, was born into the Greek royal family, and Charles has deep ties to the country. And speaking of England, heavy snow in northern England forced motorists to seek shelter or spend the night in their cars and knocked out power to more than 2,500 customers, officials said Sunday. Trucks jackknifed in the snow, blocking highways, as drivers reported taking hours to complete short trips, while others were forced to find a place to stay along their routes or in their vehicles. Aunt Brett said he had been stuck in his car for 19 hours since Saturday afternoon while driving from Essex to Cumbria, a journey that should have taken just over five hours. I was heading up to a family wake wedding. It's fair to say I didn't make it, he told the BBC. I'm down to my last bit of water and having to ration it. I know the emergency services are busy, but we've just been left here without help. And from New York, a man killed four relatives, including two children, in a knife attack at their New York City home early Sunday, then set the building on fire and stabbed two police officers before one of them fatally shot him, officials said. The rampage took place before dawn at a house in Far Rockaway, a seaside section of Queens. Police were summoned to the home at about 5.10 a.m., when a young female caller dialed 911 and said her cousin was killing her family. The suspect was identified as Courtney Gordon, 38, who police said had been visiting the family from his home in the Bronx. The identities of his victims were not immediately disclosed. So we've reached the halfway point of our broadcast, and at this point we read today's obituaries. Deborah Ann Leach Bates, 81, of East Bridgewater and West Yarmouth, passed away peacefully on November 29th. Debbie was raised in East Bridgewater and graduated from East Bridgewater High School in 1960. She attended the Chandler School for Women and graduated in 1962 before marrying Frederick Bates. They lived briefly together in Seattle, Washington, before moving to Hamden, Mass., and eventually settled into their home in West Yarmouth, where Debbie remained for several years. In 2016, she relocated to Sandwich to be closer to her grandchildren, who frequently enjoyed sleeping over and staying up late playing board games with her. For several years, Debbie Bates was a devoted medical secretary and an office manager to a group of doctors in Hyannis. She enjoyed welcoming everyone with a smile, and her warm personality earned her several wonderful friendships over the years. She was an avid shopper and loved traveling to Disney with her family, which she did more than 10 times. Debbie is survived by the family she cherished, her two children, Patricia Ann Bates-Gill and her husband John of East Sandwich, and Gregory Bates of Rochester. Her three grandchildren that she loved endlessly, Connor, Ryan, and Megan Gill of East Sandwich. She was also survived by her brother David Leach and his wife Ginger of South Carolina and their two daughters. In lieu of flowers, the family is requesting donations be made to the Alzheimer's Association. Visiting hours will be held on Wednesday, December 6th from 2 to 4 p.m. 
and 5 to 7 p.m. at Nickerson Bourne Funeral Home on Route 6A in Sandwich. A service will be held the following morning at 10 a.m. at the funeral home. Burial will be private. A. Lovell Elliott died on November 10th in Barnstable. He was born on December 4th, 1923 in Toledo, Ohio, and resided in the area until college. He also lived in Virginia and in Columbus and Worthington, Ohio, where he headed his own ad agency. In 1983, he moved to Massachusetts, where he dealt in historic documents and autographs. His home was on Cape Cod, where there was a kinship with the five Mayflower passengers, including Elder Brewster, from whom he was descended. A graduate and lifelong fan and supporter of The Ohio State University, he was senior class president, president of Phi Delta Theta Fraternity, and president of Sphinx Senior Men's Honorary Society. In addition, he edited OSU's Sundial Humor magazine. In later years, he served in various capacities in the United Way, as a settlement house president in Columbus, and in organizations for the homeless as a volunteer at the Veterans Administration Clinic in Hyannis. His philanthropies covered a broad range, especially the Food Bank of Greater Boston. Over the years, he donated historic papers to universities, libraries, and historical societies. He endowed the Joan T. and A. Lovell Elliott Fund of the Guide Dog Foundation for the Blind, the Joan T. and A. Lovell Elliott Foundation of the Semper Fi Fund for Wounded Veterans, and the Joan T. and A. Lovell Elliott Foundation for Scholarships for the American Indian College Fund. Lovell was an accomplished photographer and presidential historian. His wife, Joan, preceded him in death in 2014, as did his son, Jay, in 2011. Preceding him in death also were his four siblings, Jane Gallion, Eleanor Shearman, Philip Elliott, and Winston Elliott. Surviving are his son, Mark Elliott of Barnstable, Liza Elliott of Elburn, Illinois, and Laura Jernigan of Alexandria, Virginia. Lovell donated his body to the University of Massachusetts Medical School. A stone will be dedicated in Lothrop Hill Cemetery near his home, where many ancestors, including Lothrop, are buried. Contributions would be welcomed by any of the causes in which Lovell was interested, especially optometry giving sight. No memorial is planned at this time. Back to the news, and the Biden administration on Saturday unveiled new rules to slash methane pollution caused by oil and gas drilling, taking aim at a climate super pollutant that accounts for one-third of the world's warming greenhouse gases. The finalized EPA standards include a requirement to eliminate the routine flaring of natural gas that is produced by new oil wells. The standards mandate regular monitoring for methane leaks at well sites and compressor stations. Regulations also require a reduction in emissions from high-emitting equipment like controllers, pumps, and storage tanks. Methane, a compound that forms the base of natural gas, is considered many times more potent than carbon dioxide. The White House projects the new regulations will prevent 1.5 billion metric tons of greenhouse gases by 2038 that would have otherwise been emitted. The final rules also include a super emitter program that will rely on remote sensing from third parties to detect large methane releases or leaks by oil and gas companies. 
The new methane emissions rule come as temperatures are rising at an alarming pace. Kicking off COP28 on Thursday, the World Meteorological Organization announced that 2023 is virtually certain to be the warmest year ever recorded. And in a related story, with planet Earth running a fever, UN Climate Talks focus Sunday on the contagious effects on human health. Under a brown haze over Dubai, the COP28 summit moved past two days of lofty rhetoric and calls for unity from top leaders to concerns about health issues, like the deaths of at least 7 million people globally from air pollution each year, and the spread of diseases like cholera and malaria as global warming upends weather systems. World Health Organization Director General Tedros uh, Adhanom Ghebreyesus said it's high time for the UN Conference of Parties on Climate to hold its first Health Day in its 28th edition, saying the threats to health from climate change were immediate and present. After two days of speeches by dozens of presidents, prime ministers, royals, and other top leaders, participants were also turning attention to tough negotiations over the next nine days to push for more agreement on ways to cap global warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 Fahrenheit since pre-industrial times. In the United States, 8.5% of greenhouse gas emissions comes from the health sector, and the Biden administration is trying to use funds from the Inflation Reduction Act to try to cut that down. U.S. officials said one of the main issues has been waste anesthesia emissions from hospitals and greenhouse gases that escape when patients are treated for respiratory diseases like asthma with albuterol inhalers. Part of the solution may come through raising awareness. When officials used a system that showed anesthesiologists how much gas they use and how much escaped, Emissions fell by as much as half, said Dr. John Balbus, the Health and Human Service Climate Change and Health Equity Director. Dr. Isalt Gilbert of Montreal said 70% of operating room emissions come from the way patients are given anesthesia. She said some types of anesthesia are more climate-friendly than others without sacrificing on quality or effectiveness when it comes to care. Forest fires caused in part by climate change can have dramatic effects on homes, health, and lives. Heat waves, which can be deadly, also can weigh on mental health, Gilbert said, while poor air quality can make life harder for those facing lung and heart ailments and can cause respiratory issues like asthma in kids. Not Not a lot of people know that the climate crisis is a health crisis. If you poison our land and you poison our water and you poison our air, You poison our bodies. That's from John Kerry, who is the U.S. Climate Envoy. And here's today's Ask Carolyn column with the headline, Wait, doesn't everyone resent the thin, young, hot fiancé? Dear Carolyn, I'm 39 and I have three younger brothers. One of them is engaged and living with his fiancé, and one weekend last summer we all stayed with him. And I cannot stand his fiancé. Part of it is on principle. My brother is 37 and she is 26. He's a doctor and I think he focused on getting established and when he wanted to have kids, he picked a younger woman. I have a lot of female friends in their 30s who describe dating as very hard specifically because men want younger women. The other part is that she is such a Stepford wife. She's a teacher and was off for the summer. 
Their entire house was cleaned and organized. She had meals or local restaurants planned. She made activity suggestion for our other brother's kids and looked incredible, thin, young, and hot. It feels like my smart, accomplished brother picked a young, hot woman instead of somebody his own age who was too busy with a career to put cereal in plastic bins. I agreed to be a bridesmaid because I couldn't think of a way to say no, but I don't know how to fake it for an entire wedding. My husband just says she was very nice to us, which is true if you just look at the surface. I need help not tearing my hair out, signed Anonymous. Dear Anonymous, please reread your letter. It is ageist, petty, cruel, bedazzled with cheap assumptions, and ungrateful to the point of comedy. Your brother chews from your description a kind, generous, inclusive, and conscientious person with one of the most difficult, underpaid, and self-sacrificing careers out there, and she busted her shapely backside to host you all, and you hate her for her looks? Holy tap dancing. If she were 36, 26 and fat, would you like her then? Or still thin, but 36? What about 26, thin, leaves dishes stacked in the sinks? Unthreatening enough? You offer no examples of her being thoughtless, destructive, mean, passive-aggressive, or dishonest. I'm sorry your friends can't get dates. That you correlate one man's choice of one woman with collective female suffering just gave me domestic supply of infants flashbacks that I could have done without today. You can worry about demographic trends, yes, but using trends to impugn individual choices and presume you'd make better ones crosses just about all the lines. Here's my advice. Sit with your reasons for trashing her, and some reasons not to, for a good long time. And here's what's on television tonight at 8 p.m. on CBS. It's The Price is Right at Night. Drew Carey hosts a week of the game show's special holiday-themed episodes beginning tonight with Office Holiday Party. The celebration continues with Singles Blind Holiday, December 7th, and College Students Home for the Holidays on December 8th. On Fox at 8 p.m., it's the season finale of Kitchen Nightmares. Gordon Ramsay steps in to help the owners of failing restaurants in the two-hour season finale. At NBC at 8 p.m. on The Voice, the top 12 artists perform live for the first time in front of coaches Nal Horn, John Legend, Reba McIntyre, and Gwen Stefani for their chance at a spot in the live semifinal. Viewers will have the chance to vote for their favorite artist overnight. And HBO at 9 p.m. has a new uh, three-part documentary series called Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning. It revisits the 1989 case of a man who placed a frantic 911 call reporting that he and his pregnant wife were shot by a black man in Boston's Mission Hill neighborhood, igniting decades-old racial tensions. And at NBC at 10 p.m., Blake Sheldon's Holiday Bartacular featuring Ice Tea. In this special episode of Blake Shelton and Carson Daly's celebrity game show, Barmageddon, which normally airs on USA Network, but tonight's on NBC at 10, Blake invites Ice Tea to his winter wonderland while they will compete in larger than life bar games with a holiday twist, including Mary Axmas, Doodle All the Way, Little Drummer Boy and Girl, and Reindeer Games. Back to some more political news. Ex-President Donald Trump has been indicted over alleged efforts to steal the 2020 election and in recent weeks drawn comparisons to dictators Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini. But 
Trump tried to turn around the anti-democratic allegations on Saturday during a campaign stop in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, accusing President Joe Biden and other Democrats of being a threat to the nation. Joe Biden is not the defender of American democracy. Joe Biden is the destroyer of American democracy, Trump said. Biden aides and supporters balked at the comments, noting that Trump has proposed stocking the civil service with politically motivated loyalists and pledged to use the Justice Department to prosecute Biden and others. It's not clear whether Trump will embrace his Saturday argument as a new direction for his campaign, but his comments could signal voter rights and other Democratic issues will be at the center of his 2024 election. Amar Musa, a spokesperson for the Biden campaign, described described Trump's democracy argument as his latest desperate attempt at distraction from issues. The American people see right through it and it won't work. Donald Trump's America in 2025 is one where the government is his personal weapon to lock up his political enemies. Biden and Trump in recent weeks have escalated some long-standing debates that will loom large in the fall campaign, including arguments over health care. Biden and his re-election campaign officials last week zeroed in on the former president after he said he's considering alternatives to President Barack Obama's signature 2010 health care law, which Trump claims is driving up cost. His plan is to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, Biden said at a campaign fundraiser Tuesday night in the Denver area. His plan is to throw every one of them who receive insurance off that legislation. Trump gets his way, it's all gone. Trump and Biden are acting like it's the general election already as they clash over health care and other policy issues. But democratic institutions will certainly be a major issue in the 2024 contest. In Cedar Rapids, Trump again accused Biden of being behind the four criminal cases against him, though federal and state prosecutors brought those charges. Opponents think they can do whatever they want, break any law, tell any lie, ruin any life, trash any norm and get away with anything they want, Trump told supporters in Iowa. Trump continues to argue that the 2020 election was stolen from him, despite a lack of evidence that he defeated Biden in the contest. The campaign clash over democracy comes as a number of political leaders describe Trump as one of the biggest threats to democracy in history, citing his plans to enhance presidential power at the expense of anybody who disputes him. Former U.S. Representative Liz Cheney, Republican from Wyoming, who voted to impeach Trump over January 6 and later lost a primary to a Trump-backed candidate, told CBS News Sunday morning that too many Republicans are being co-opted by the ex-president. One of the things that we see happening today is a sort of sleepwalking into dictatorship in the United States, said Cheney, who's in the midst of a book tour. And this story, more Americans now believe the death penalty, which is undergoing a years-long decline of use and support, is being administered, administered unfairly, a finding that is growing to its, adding to its growing isolation in the U.S. But whether the public's waning support for the death penalty and the declining numbers of executions and death sentences will ultimately result in the abolition of capital punishment in the U.S., remains uncertain, experts said. There are some scholars who are optimistic the death penalty will be totally eradicated pretty soon, said Eric Berger, a law professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I think what's more likely is it's going to continue to decline, 
but I think it's less likely that in the foreseeable future, it'll totally disappear. In 2023, there were 24 executions in the U.S., with the final one for the year taking place Thursday in Oklahoma. Additionally, 21 people were sentenced to death in 2023, which was the ninth consecutive year where fewer than 30 people were executed and fewer than 50 people received death sentences. Only five states, Texas, Florida, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Alabama, conducted executions this year. That was the lowest number in 20 years. Earlier this year, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed bills enacting two new death penalty laws. One allows the death penalty in child rape convictions, despite a U.S. Supreme Court ruling banning capital punishment in such cases. The other law ends a unanimous jury requirement in death penalty sentencing. If you commit a crime that is really, really heinous, you should have the ultimate punishment, DeSantis said in May, commenting on the death penalty for child rape convictions. Ongoing difficulties by states in securing supplies of execution drugs have prompted some states to explore new and untested methods of execution or to revive previously abandoned ones. Alabama has set a January execution date for what would be the nation's first attempt to execute an inmate with nitrogen gas. In July, Idaho became the fifth state to authorize executions by a firing squad. The last time a U.S. inmate was executed by firing squad was in 2010. Texas, the nation's busiest busiest capital punishment state, has not been immune from the ongoing debate over the death penalty. Earlier this year, the GOP-led Texas House passed a bill that would eliminate the death penalty in cases involving someone was diagnosed with schizophrenia. The bill ultimately failed as it was never taken up by the Texas Senate. GOP State Representative Jeff Leach said in March the bill was not part of a secret effort to do away with the death penalty in Texas. I believe that in Texas we need the death penalty, Leach said, but I am, as a supporter of the death penalty, against executing people who at the time they commit the offense had a severe mental illness. Even in Texas there can be some change with the death penalty, Berger said. But you can't see the kind of change where you would expect them to say, Ah, we're done with capital punishment altogether, at least not yet. In some lighter news, the newest group of Kennedy Center honorees, including comedian Billy Crystal and actor Queen Latifah, were celebrated Sunday night at a star-studded event commemorating their lifetime achievement in arts and entertainment. Opera singer Renee Fleming, music star Barry Gibb, and prolific hitmaker Dionne Warwick were honored at the Black Tie Gala each received personalized tributes that included appearances and performances that typically have been kept secret from the honorees themselves. President Joe Biden welcomed the honorees to the White House before the event, saying the performing arts reflect who we are as Americans and as human beings. The honorees have helped shape how we see ourselves, how we see each other, and how we see our world, said Biden, who then introduced this year's class with a set of glowing superlatives about their work. Biden and First Lady Jill Biden then headed to the Kennedy Center to attend the festivities. The ceremony began just after 6.30 p.m. with 2017 Kennedy Center honoree Gloria Estefan leading a troupe of dancers down the aisle while performing her mega-hit, Get On Your Feet. In announcing the recipients earlier this year, the Kennedy Center's president, Deborah Rutter, called this year's group of inductees an extraordinary mix of individuals who have redefined their art forms. 
Crystal, 75, came to national prominence in the 1970s playing Jody Dallas, one of the first openly gay characters on American network television on the sitcom, sitcom Soap. He went on to a brief but memorable one-year stint on Saturday Night Live before starring in a string of movies, including hits such as When Harry Met Sally, The Princess Bride, and City Slickers. On the red carpet before the show, movie director Rob Reiner, who cast Crystal in multiple iconic roles, poked fun at the honoree. I hope this doesn't give him a big head because, honestly, his head's already big, Reiner said. Crystal, who received the Kennedy Center's Mark Twain Prize for Lifetime Achievement in Comedy in 2007, joins an elite group of comedians cited for both. David Letterman, Steve Martin, Lorne Michaels, Lily Tomlin, Carol Burnett, and Neil Simon. Bill Cosby received both honors, but they were rescinded in 2018 following his sexual assault conviction, which later was overturned. Warwick, 82, shot to stardom in the 60s as the muse for the superstar, superstar writing team of Burt Bacharach and Hal David. Her discography includes a multi-decade string of hits, both with and without Bacharach, that includes I Say a Little Prayer, I'll Never Love This Way Again, and That's What Friends Are For. Warwick's tribute kicked off the show with a testimonial by 2021 honoree Debbie Allen, a performance by Cynthia Erivo and Saturday Night Live cast member Ego Nwadim recounting how scary it was to perform her impression of Warwick in front of the diva herself. Fleming, 64, is one of the leading sopranos of her era, with a string of accolades that includes a National Medal of Arts bestowed, bestowed by President Barack Obama, a Cross of the Order of Merit from the German government, and honorary membership in England's Royal Academy of Music. Although she had participated in five other tribute performances for previous honorees, Fleming said being the focus of attention was a wild experience. It's a different kind of whirlwind, she said on the red carpet. Lots going on, but I don't have to worry about performing tonight. Gibb, 76, achieved global fame as part of one of the most successful bands in the history of modern music, the Bee Gees. Along with his late brothers, Robin and Maurice, the trio launched a nearly unmatched string of hits that defined a generation of music. I'm proud of what my brothers and myself accomplished, Gibb said on the red carpet. When we were good and when we were on, it was really special. Latifah, 53, has been a star since age 19 when her debut album and hit single Ladies First made her the first female crossover rap star. She has gone on to a diverse career that has included seven studio albums, starring roles in multiple television shows and movies, and an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress for her role in the movie musical Chicago. Fleming and Latifah, real name Dana Owens, also share an obscure bit of Kennedy Center Honors historical trivia. They both performed at the 2014 Super Bowl. In other news, the chair of Florida's Republican Party say he will not resign after a woman reported that he raped her, saying in an email to supporters that he is innocent. He did not address any specifics of the accusation that has roiled the state's conservative politics. Christian Ziegler sent this statement to state Republicans on Saturday saying that he and his wife, Bridget Ziegler, are being targeted because they are such loud political voices. His wife co-founded the conservative group Moms for Liberty, 
which has led a campaign with Governor Ron DeSantis to roll back sex education in Florida schools. DeSantis said last week that while Christian Ziegler is innocent until proven guilty, he should resign to avoid becoming a distraction to their party. Ziegler insists he won't quit. We have a country to save, and I'm not going to let false allegations of a crime put that mission on the bench as I wait for this process to wrap up, wrote Ziegler, 40. A longtime GOP activist, he ascended to the state's party's top post in February. No charges have been filed against Ziegler, but the Sarasota police investigation remains open. The accuser, who has known Christian Ziegler for 20 years, told police in October that he forced his way into her apartment and raped her, according to search warrant affidavits filed by police. In his Saturday email, Ziegler did not address having told detectives that he did have sex with the woman, but that it was consensual. He also didn't address his wife telling detectives that the couple and the woman had group sex once, more than a year ago. My family is rock solid. My wife is behind me 150%, and we have methods in place to protect our three children, just as we have with all previous attacks that we have faced, Christian Ziegler wrote. The Zieglers did not return calls and text messages Sunday seeking further comment. DeSantis spokesman Jerry Redford did not return a call and text message Sunday seeking comment on Ziegler's refusal to resign. The police affidavits say that the Ziegler's had group sex with a woman have led Democrats and gay rights leaders to accuse the couple of hypocrisy, given that an organization Bridget Ziegler co-founded, Moms for Liberty, has joined DeSantis and the Florida GOP in pushing back against LGBTQ plus causes. Bridget Ziegler is also an elected member of the Sarasota County School Board and was appointed by DeSantis to the board that now oversees Walt Disney World's land development. DeSantis pushed through legislation last year disbanding a Disney-controlled board after the company opposed his bill that limits sex education in schools. The accuser's name is redacted in the documents. The AP does not name possible victims of sexual assault without their permission. And that's all the time I have for today. This is Beth saying thank you for listening and for your continued support of the Audible Local Ledger.